Welcome to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta. We have a great guest today. Her name is Suad McKennett. She is a national security correspondent for the Washington Post. She's reported on terrorism for the New York Times and other news organizations. And she is the author of I Was Told to Come Alone, My Journey Behind the Lines of Jihad. This is a national bestseller. The book is on the best books of 2017 lists of the Washington Post, Publishers Weekly, and Barnes and & Noble. And I am proud and honored to welcome Suad to the podcast. Hey, Suad. Hey, Don. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, Suad and I have known each other since 2003. We met in London while I was posted there for the New York Times, and we'll talk about that. But this is just great to be reacquainted with Suad after so many years. And uh, I feel sort of partially, you know, proud and uh, that I was there at the very beginning or the very early days of your career when we worked together at the New York Times. And I'm thrilled to tell our listeners that you won in November, early in November, the Daniel Pearl Award, which is a very prestigious honor. And the Daniel Pearl Foundation recognized you uh, as a one-woman effort who penetrates the secrecy wall surrounding ISIS operatives. And they said, Suad best exemplifies Daniel Pearl's spirit of courage and integrity, as well as his uncompromising commitment to the pursuit of truth. And I know firsthand that all of that is true. So congratulations on that great honor. How did it feel to win that uh, that prize? Thank you, Don. Well, um, I was very touched when I received the phone call and when I was told that um, I would be the, this year's Daniel Pearl recipient, um, the, the award recipient. So, I mean, to me, this was a very, very emotional moment when um, when I received the phone call, when I spoke to Daniel Pearl's father. And um, just, you know, on one hand, because I remember very well when, when we received the news that he had been um, first kidnapped and then later killed. And, um, you know, I'm, as you know, I'm a journalist of uh, Muslim Arab descent. So um, to, 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 to have had a colleague who um, was killed by people who have done this in the name of my religion and then to later receive um, the award, um, that really meant a lot to me. And I was, uh, and I'm still very, very humbled and, and touched by, um, by becoming this year's uh, recipient. Yeah. Well, I, I, I couldn't think of anybody uh, more deserving of such an honor. Uh, for our listeners who don't know, Daniel Pearl was a Wall Street Journal reporter who was kidnapped and murdered by terrorists in Pakistan in early 2002. And uh, this is in the early months after 9-11, and he exhibited uh, incredible courage uh, and bravery in those early months, um, going out and meeting with terrorists, with terrorist leaders. Uh, and that is the kind of work, Suad, that you've done now for about 15 years. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask you, why did you start? What, what really motivated you early on to do this kind of very dangerous, perilous work? Because when you started doing it, you were a woman just in your early 20s, I believe. Isn't that right? Yeah, it's right. Um, so in my case, I think it was the the moment where I met the wife of a firefighter who had died during 9-11. Um, this woman came to Hamburg. I was back then still working um, for the Washington Post at 
this was in 2002 before we met Don. And um, so she came to Hamburg and uh, we took her out for dinner. There were a couple of other journalists. And um, after the dinner, she she looked at us and she said, you know, I'm actually to a certain extent holding um, you guys and our politicians responsible for what happened um, during 9-11. And we asked her why. And she said, because nobody told us that there were people out there who um, are hating us so much. And why do they hate us? Um, you, our politicians didn't tell us, but you're journalists and you also didn't tell us. And um, I felt like she looked, I mean, she looked at me and she was, you know, she wanted an answer. I was the only person there who was of Muslim Arab descent and I couldn't give her an answer. And um, I basically that evening had a conversation with Peter Finn, who was my colleague back then. He was a Washington Post reporter. He's my editor today. And I asked him, so why, I mean, why are we not talking to those people, to the terrorists, to members of Al-Qaeda and the Taliban? And and he told me, well, it's not that easy. Uh, you know, those people don't want to talk to us. It's dangerous. And um, and I think this was one of the, oh my, I mean, this is the main reason why I decided to basically go into the world of jihad and interview leaders and recruiters and recruits first you know uh, myself and i guess this this woman this meeting with this woman was one of the main reasons for my decision i love that story you i mean you you basically saw that there was a need yeah uh by a single person actually um and and that's what motivated you to do this kind of work well it was not only a single person she had lost um her husband she was somebody who um, was, you know, suddenly became, uh, had to deal with, you know, a totally different world. Um, she had a couple of children she had to take care of. And I felt that, um, as a journalist, we absolutely, you know, had to, to give people answers. And it was a, a duty and it's part of our duty. It's why we became journalists. And I felt given, that um, after the attacks on September 11th, so many people had similar questions. Um, I, I, you know, I thought, well, first of all, I am Muslim myself, and I needed to understand why people would commit so, um, you know, mass murder in the name of my religion. But on the other hand, I was a journalist who who wanted to become a journalist because I watched All the President's Men when I was a, a child. And um, I felt it's, you know, we, we are journalists because we want to, to to give people answers because it's our our duty to shed light into darkness. And this was my job. So, yeah, this, this, this I think it's still my job. And that's why I decided to, to go into this journey. And you and I met in early 2003. Um, yeah. You had done, you had gotten some great stories and scoops by doing that kind of work for the Washington Post and co-bylines with Peter Finn. And certainly we at the New York Times noticed you. Um, I was based in London. I was sent there in early 2003 in large part to cover counterterrorism issues in Europe and the Middle East from London. And so we met then. And let's just talk about that. The big story that we did, we did a bunch of stories together, but the story I want to talk about, which you feature in your book, I was told to come alone, is the story of Khalid al-Masri, yeah. um, which you found him, and then we worked on that story together. But I want you to tell our listeners about that particular story and and, and how, it, how it developed and how it evolved into a, one of the stories I'm most proud of in, in my career. 
Yeah, in fact, actually, I uh, if it weren't for your for your um, let's say um, support, I'm not so sure we would have been able to to do the story because it, I don't know if you remember Don, but when I um, heard the first time about Khalid Al Masri, when I received the phone call, I went to uh, to meet him with a with another colleague of ours, and uh, this colleague didn't really believe him, and um, and I was in a situation where I tried to push. Um, our editors back then to give me a bit more time and, um, and I called you and I was telling you well um, you know I just need a little bit more time and would you be willing to um, to work with me on this and um, and then you actually also spoke to the editors so they gave they gave us a bit more time and I digged in and then uh, you um, came to Germany um, and it was um, you know it was amazing after the first meeting you basically also said yeah I, I believe him and uh, because I felt like oh my god what if he says uh, that the guy is also not telling the truth um, uh, so it was it was one of those moments where um, the two of us then uh, really fought um for getting the truth out and I remember how we met with you know the all these different sources um and then uh, you remember the lawyer and our afternoon meetings with him at this um, very weird Italian restaurant you know I mean all these <laughs> moments yeah um, no it was a it was a crazy story but explain for our listeners Al Masri's story yeah. and, and when you and when you tell it I'm sure some listeners will think to themselves, well, this really sounds like a far-fetched story, which is why I think our initial colleague didn't necessarily believe it. Absolutely. Well, I received this phone call one afternoon, um, and there was this man on the other line who said to me, who asked me in Arabic, are you the journalist Suad McKinnett? And I basically said, who are you? And uh, and he was telling me, well, my name is Khaled al-Masri, and I was uh, kidnapped by the CIA. I was taken to a secret detention center, and I don't know why, and my family disappeared what happened to my family he was um in he was he was basically shaking and he was um also i felt like he was crying and and i told him i mean i first thought maybe somebody's trying to make you know a bad joke or something but um i uh, asked him to call me from a different phone number and to give me then also a, a contact and decided to, um, he spoke to me, he, he told me this crazy story. He said, he claimed that uh, he had been on his way to Macedonia and then suddenly had been stopped and uh, taken to a hotel room. And um, after a couple of days, CIA agents apparently came and took him um, uh, to a secret detention center. Um, and then after a couple of months, they uh, figured out they had the wrong guy and then just let him go and dropped him somewhere at the Albanian border. And this was the, the story he told us. Um, and when our other colleague went with me and uh, we met him, uh, at the train station in, in at, the, at a train station somewhere in Germany, um, this colleague initially didn't believe him. He thought, well, this guy is just making up the story because he had, uh, you know, Amazri left um, Germany because he, he said he had trouble with his wife and wanted to go um, to 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 Macedonia um, because he wanted to take a couple of days off, but also for business. 
And so this colleague initially thought, no, this cannot be true. The guy is lying. And um, yeah, it was a crazy story. And we, I don't know if you remember, Don, but we had um, to spend a couple of weeks basically digging into different um, files. And um, and also um, the uh, prosecutor started uh, an investigation and they did a, some testing with the, you know his hair and other things. But it was a crazy story, absolutely. And I mean, if I look back and I remember sometimes this phone conversation, I um, um, I think it, it yeah, I, I, I do understand why I, our colleague initially said, no, um, this guy must be lying. But Yeah, it's, it sounded far-fetched. But what, what I found fascinating about just, and this is one of these rare times in my career where um, I worked with a colleague and you were the colleague where another colleague did not necessarily believe somebody, yet we came in, and I think a big part of why that story was done, you're being very modest, was just the force of will that you exhibited, that you believed him, and you felt so strongly that El Masri was telling the truth that I felt I wanted to go to Germany to hear the story, and then once I did, and I, and I remember we spent hours with him on that first visit, with him and his attorney, and we looked, I was able to look him in the eye and hear the story um, from beginning to end. And the details seemed so, um, it, it seemed almost impossible for somebody to um, come up with on their own. And it's that old trick that detectives use. They listen to stories told over and over again hmm. by a witness to judge the credibility of somebody. And I think that's what we did with Al Mastery. We heard his story more than once. You yeah. certainly heard it multiple times, more times than I did. But I heard it enough times and heard it told the same way that I believed him. And then when we wrote the story, you know, we should tell our listeners the CIA um, completely denied that Al Masri was held in a camp in Afghanistan where he claimed he was tortured for months. Mm. Um, this was literally uh, at the time of the black sites, the CIA black sites, uh, that the Washington Post actually first broke the story uh, of the the existence of those sites where terrorism. Uh, terrorists uh, that were picked up around the world by various countries were brought and oftentimes tortured um, in conjunction with the United States. Yeah. Uh, and the Post, of course, Dana Priest was the reporter who led that reporting and won a Pulitzer Prize for that. But El Masri's story was an example of it, and it was because of mistaken identity um, that he was picked up and then eventually released. But, Suad, you'll recall that the CIA, the White House, under the Bush administration, the entire government denied that they had anything to do with this. And so there was the stakes were very high for the two of us just yeah. as journalists to try to, we had to make sure the story was right or our careers were on the line. Yeah, absolutely. I remember how um, we went back and forth and where how we went through the story again and again. And we uh, interviewed him several times. Um, and then, uh, yes, I remember how we had conversations with the editors and they were telling us if, uh, if you know, if you guys are not sure about this, um, just so you know, if anything is wrong here, that's the end of your career. And yeah, you were absolutely right. There was a lot of pressure on us. Yeah, I remember that. There was. And um, so you tell this story uh, in your wonderful book in this chapter. And um, the one part of it that you left out that I that I want to discuss with you is um, you may recall the story ran around the holidays in late 2004, early 2005, sort mm. of in the Christmas period. And Bill Keller was the executive editor of The New York Times at the time who 
for some reason was concerned about this flat out denials by the government and was not inclined to put the story on the front page. He was going to publish it, but did not want, did not see the story as significant necessarily as we did. I think he had some nervousness about the denials. And if you remember, Suad, we both put our foot down pretty hard and threw a little mini tantrum actually to to say, no, this is a story worthy of the front. And it was one of those rare times too, where we were able to win and Keller uh, eventually agreed and put the story on the front page and it got a uh, worldwide attention and and as you said investigations were opened and uh and and tell what happened to el mastri tell tell our listeners what occurred after the story was published yeah so we um, you're absolutely right so the, the story ran and then um we were both i remember we were both waiting to hear some denial or whatever from any organization nothing came and then we um i felt like finally i could go and sleep after like two days of waiting <laughs> um but yeah then um mr almazri i mean the whole world wanted to talk to him he became the news of uh, you know in many different uh, outlets um people wanted to interview him and um, for some time, he felt uh, very confident that he would receive some justice. And um, yeah, as you recall, Don, um, things went uh, somehow the other way. And um, we then the next thing we heard about after a couple of um, of years was that Al Masri had actually also a nervous breakdown. That he yes. attacked people. That he set fire to store that he ended up in prison and um, I saw him like one and a half years ago and he l basically lived like a homeless person um, somewhere in, 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 you know, in Vienna and was uh, very angry. He was uh, absolute um, disappointed and angry that he never received an apology, that he never received an explanation why this happened to him. And um, I don't know if you recall, Don, but we didn't just stop there with our investigation. We also uh, followed up um, with a story about the involvement uh, of the German government in all of yes. this. And Al Masri, when I met him in Austria, told me that he was even more upset about um, the fact that he never received any explanation from the German government or the services, given that he was a German citizen. And... Um, so yeah, it's been uh, it's uh, it's it might be a story that a lot of people no longer have on their radar, but um, certainly people like Al Masri do, and unfortunately, such stories are still being used by um, you know terrorist organizations such as ISIS or Al Qaeda um, to show people um, that we in in the West are not really you know, that we, we don't, that we are dealing with double standards here when it comes to people like Al-Masri and others. So, um, yeah, that's uh, why, that's why I think the story is still very significant. I do too, uh, for sure. And um, I want to read an excerpt from your book. It's um, two extremely powerful lines um, that you write. I was told to come alone. I was not to carry any identification and would have to leave my cell phone, audio recorder, watch, and purse at my hotel. That's incredibly powerful, and it really represents your courage and bravery. And before you tell me about that story, I wanted to ask you a very simple question. Where does your courage and bravery come from? Because you exhibit it. Every story you do um, now for 15 years on the world's most dangerous beat. Mm -hmm. 
It's a very good question. I think it's, um, I, I would say that my grandmother in Morocco is a little bit responsible for that. Um, so I lived with her when I was a child and I uh, s saw how she didn't allow people to bossy her around, that she didn't, she disliked injustice and uh, she would sometimes take risks. Um, not the same risks I, I am taking or I took in the past. Um, but however, I also think it's, it's this, um, you know, the decision to become a journalist and, um, not only a journalist, I was so fascinated by all the president's men, that movie, and saw how, how those two, you know, those colleagues of ours were able to, um, to change, uh, people and to change history and to change, uh, the world, um, through their writing. And I believed it's, uh, and still believe it's important, um, or it's my duty as a journalist to, to explain to people how, um, how, how, you know, people like ISIS, uh, recruiters or commanders or Al-Qaeda commanders, how they think and why they became who they became, because that's the only possibility if, you know, to, f to find solutions one day, if we understand how they think and what's going on in their hearts and minds, we might be able to find solutions. Now, have there ever been a moment when you've been on a story where you felt your life was in danger, was I imminently in danger? Yes, yes, it happened. Um, for example, in the, sto the story that I um, worked on for the New York Times when I went into a terrorist camp in um, in Lebanon, it was um, it was actually a terrorist camp inside a, a Palestinian camp, and um, I found myself in an interrogation, and I had a gun pointed at me. Um, there was a moment where I felt very, very. Um, yeah, where I felt, okay, this can, could go wrong. Um, or when, um, I was in Algeria and, um, we got, you know, stopped and people were also pointing their guns at us and, uh, were pretty nervous. I mean, about any, you, you, you sit in the car with your colleague and your driver and you see that those security people are very nervous and, um, that if any person inside the car makes a wrong move, um, they will start shooting at you. So, or in the prison in Egypt, when I got detained with my colleague, Nicholas Kulish, um, and we, you know, and people, your interrogator tells you, you're nowhere. Nobody knows where this place is. And, um, and there were all kinds of threats that, that evening. So, uh, yes, I, I, I know what it feels like when, when you have the feeling your life is in danger. And, and just one of those instances would have made some reporters, maybe many reporters, think, okay, that's it. You know, I'm, I'm not going to risk my life again just for a story. So I'm curious what drives you after having not just one, but two or three or four of those types of near-miss experiences, you know, brushes with death uh, to continue to do this kind of work? Because in all honesty, Don, I think that um, people are still um, repeating the same mistakes again and again. Because I have the impression um, that um, after all that happened, uh, after you know, since the attacks on September 11th, um, politicians, societies are still not willing to take on the um, the reasons for radicalization. So very often. The, um, it's, it's people like this, uh, firefighter's wife who 
are the ones um, that go that are going to pay the price for for all of this. And I think it's um, since I did have or still do have the ability and possibility of um, interviewing some of these people. Um, I think it's my duty as a, as a journalist, as a reporter, to um, to explain to people what's what's going on. It's uh, it's important to explain to people that now, even after the so-called caliphate is is going to disappear as a as a you know from Syria and Iraq, um, it, it's not going to be the end of of ISIS. Um, it's my I think it's my duty as a reporter to explain to people that. Um, uh, there's still radicalization going on because we are still not um, capable um, as societies, but also our decision makers, um, to take on the the reasons for for radicalization. And um, so, yeah, that's why I think I have this this drive of trying to explain, of trying to to help people to see what's what's going on and to to explain where the hatred is coming from. And to explain where the hatred is coming from, you go directly to the source of the hatred or the sources of the hatred around the world uh, in, in a way, as I said earlier, when I quoted those two lines from your book, where you're often not carrying any ID, you don't have a cell phone or you have a burner phone yeah. if you have one at all. Um, it's all these late night sort of meetings with people who... Many times you don't know who they are or you know very little about them. You'll check them out through other sources. I know you do that, but it, it, it's at great risk. And so one of the things I'm curious about as a journalist who prides myself in getting sources to trust me, certainly not as in difficult as circumstances as you do, how do you get these people to trust you? First, how do you get them to meet with you? And then once they meet with you, how do you get people who have you know hatred in their hearts, who are uh, terrorists oftentimes, to trust you enough to open up and tell you their stories well it's a it's a long process and um it's uh, it's something that takes time and it's uh, also certainly something that i mean uh, will need um the you know you need other people to vouch for you um i mean those people they do read what we write they they do also know who we are they do um i mean they do know how um what kind of things i have uh, written in the past um and they will ask other people they will ask people who are um who they know uh, know me and um, um, very often uh, before the meeting, there are, you know, other people you have to meet who are checking you out before you actually get to see a commander. So um, of ISIS, for example, in the case of Abu Yusuf, that's the that's the that's the one uh, meeting. That's um, the chapter um, from which you. Uh, just mm -hmm. read the the two lines um this commander i mean it took quite some time and i had to um talk and meet other people who had to vouch for me and uh, before they finally agreed that he could meet me and um and so what how do you get how do you get even those 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 middlemen mm -hmm. to trust you enough to vouch for you with a commander so Don, for ex one of the things is uh, that I that I always do is I tell people, look, I'm a journalist. I'm not going into a meeting um, where um, you know where I'm going to sit there and I'm just going to listen and I'm not going to challenge the person. I tell them upfront what my job is. I tell them upfront um, how I work. 
um, that we have ethical standards, very high uh, ethical standards, and that I won't um, allow uh, certain things to happen. Um, and I think that is one of the of of, of the very important points or reasons why um, they 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 trust me enough um, to agree to have the meeting finally. So, but it takes time, and you have to sit there with people. You have to um, you you know. I had I think in my case, it's really the mixture of. Um, having done this for so many years, um, having, you know, some other people who would vouch for me and um, the articles um, that basically also prove what kind of journalist I am. And I never, and I think that's actually a big mistake some of our colleagues sometimes do, but I never go there and say, oh, yes, you know what, I'm just going to do a great story that is going to bring, you know, show the world uh, actually that everybody thinks of you in a wrong way. That's no, I always tell them, look, um, I'm a journalist, going to listen to your side, but I'm also listening to other people, uh, other people's sides, and I'm going to challenge you. I will have questions that um, might be challenging, and um, uh, I'm not a PR person, so, um, and it, it helped me, at, but I, I have to tell you, in some cases, I mean, I uh, I could see that people had a different idea of uh, what kind of journalism or what kind of stories they wanted to see in, in papers. And then I just say, you know what, it's better for me and for, uh, for all of us if we don't do this uh, interview because I'm not going to allow people to change my words or to um, later uh, see a transcription of the interview or whatsoever. That's not going to happen. I'm, no I'm not going to show people quotes. Right. That's one of the things that, that's so difficult, right? Because many of these people have expectations. I mean, you're talking about managing expectations of, a, of sources, which is a very important job of an investigative reporter. And these people have expectations that you're going to help them with their propaganda. Oftentimes, their mission is they're propagandists, and they see you as a means to do that. So by managing that up front, I'm assuming some people will then turn you down, right? There'll be some sources that will just say, well, I'm not interested in somebody who's going to challenge me, for instance. Um, or, or, or are they at least willing to meet with you even knowing that or they, you know, they appreciate how upfront you are going in? And once you're vouched for, they will still meet with you. So I had situations where I basically said no, thank you. I don't. I don't want to do this. Uh, I had situations where people met with me, and um, uh, but they said it's not going to be an interview. It will just be, you know, for your own knowledge, uh, um, mm -hmm. uh, so you know what we really think. Um, you know, Don, here is why I think this is important. And you mentioned propaganda, and since you mentioned propaganda, let me tell you this. I know a couple of people. Um, you know, a couple of people asked me, why would you even go there? They are publishing so much online. Why don't you just, you know, use what they are publishing, um, on, uh, uh, Telegram and all the other accounts and, and, and analyze and write your stories. And I always tell them because then I'm going to do exactly that. I'm just going to use their propaganda. Um, you know, unfiltered without having the uh, possibility of asking them, uh, challenging them uh, and give that propaganda uh, basically to the reader. Uh, and that's not what I'm going to do. It's not my job. Um, and I think we all have to be, you cannot understand um, or really give the reader uh, an, an idea at least of um, how those people 
think or what's the story behind the story? Why did they become uh, members or commanders of ISIS? If you just or if we would just use whatever they publish on Twitter or on Telegram, um, in you know, uh, and and use that as a as a base for writing articles, that's not enough. So yes, it is difficult. It's dangerous. It takes time. Um, but I think and and yes, I'm not somebody who goes all the time on Twitter and um, publishes uh, any kind of press statement or any kind of statement that ISIS and other organizations put out there. Um, but because I think it's also my duty as a journalist, I'm not I don't want to be part of like ISIS propaganda. So um, instead, um, it is the more difficult way and it takes time. And um, but I think it's worth it. Oh, it's absolutely worth it. And I couldn't agree more with the, um, you, you know, w with the fact that you don't want to just be a stenographer. Um, too many reporters uh, these days take words, you know, there's the false equivalence of taking two sides, throwing it into the same story. That's not what readers want, clearly. They're, they, they are sick of that kind of reporting. They want uh, deeply reported stories behind the stories, seeking the truth, the kind of work you do. And you, you kept mentioning in several of your answers in a row so odd, and I was struck by it, is it takes time. Yeah. That's, the, that's the key. Uh, and it's expensive. Um, and, you know, you're flying all over the world for these meetings, the kind of work I do too. I'll spend months on a single project. It's expensive. And, you know, we're both blessed that we have um, bosses that allow us to dig in deeply. Um, but it's really valued by readers um, to do that kind of reporting. And they know it when they see it. That's the other thing, right? I mean, readers really do recognize that kind of work when they see it because it's rare. It's it's and you're absolutely right. I mean, we are blessed um, without you know um, editors and and um, and publishers and um, and bosses who would uh, basically understand the kind of work we're doing and who who understand how much time it takes and who understand that sometimes for one story you have to travel to different countries because you have to meet uh, num you know source number A and, uh, and then go to a different country and double check what this person told you and then yes it, it's expensive and as you said I think I mean I saw it just just uh, now this week for example when we published a story about um, the women and the role of women inside ISIS and to to be able ter terrific terrific story by uh, the way congratulations uh, thank, excellent thank, yeah, it was just published you. by the Washington Post this week and, and we'll link to it with the uh, with the newsletter this Th week thank you so much but this story took quite a lot of time because until um, you know we were able to reach to this uh, to, to women who actually really were part of the women's brigade and um, it, it took time and it took uh, really uh, also um, uh, trips to countries that are not even mentioned in the story. So yes, um, it's uh, uh, I, I think also um, again, you know, Don, this is um, this is this is journalism that, uh, as you rightly said, it costs money, and um, but it's uh, it's also the journalism that might actually help um, giving readers an idea about what might come next. And um, it's not something that, that talks only about what happened in the past, but also gives you an inside view into, okay, this is what we might have to deal with in the near future. And 
Yeah, and you and I, we have done such projects together um, a couple of times, and uh, that's that's. Um, but it's it's absolutely expensive journalism. Yeah, it's expensive to do. Yeah, and, and, and but you're right. It's important work. The forward-looking kind of journalism that's prescient that that tells readers things to anticipate um, is really, in many ways, sometimes the hardest kind of reporting to do. Um, and and it is just so time consuming. Um, but the other kind of reporting that you do um, that I'm always amazed by is you tell people things that they don't know, that they would never know if it weren't for you, which is a remarkable feat as a journalist. And um, one of the most famous things that you told the world, something that they didn't know, is you uncovered the identity of the ISIS executioner, Jihadi John. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you, how did that happen? How were you able to do that? Well, I had, um, first of all, um, a colleague of, of mine who is actually now um, with the New York Times, but back then was um, a colleague um, at our bureau in Washington, Adam Goldman. Um, he had been working on this whole uh, story about the so-called Beatles, you know, the, the group of uh, Brits who um, were involved in, um, in, in, in the um, kidnapping and... Uh, in, they were doing the beheading videos yes, that were, yes, yes and, few uh, years ago. And one of the, so Jihadi John got his name because, you know, um, because of that. And um, uh, so at one stage he called me and um, told me that he was working on this and asked me if uh, I could maybe um, dig into it and, and if I had sources. Um, so I said, well, yes, why not? And um, I, I mean, I describe it in the in the book, in the chapter, more in-depthly about, you know, I had to take different trips. I went to to the UK first, I met um, a source there who um, wasn't, I mean, who kind of like knew bits and bytes, but not uh, really a lot. And um, and then I went back to, um, to Germany and I had a, you know, a source who was um, quite high up uh, inside uh, the ISIS structure, but um, somebody I'd known for many years who used to be in a different uh, terrorist organization before. And um, this person and uh, I, we had like a kind of like a, how can I say this, uh, a structure established, um, um, uh, which basically was if I ever had something to double check, which was very sensitive, um, then only I would contact him. And I had to go to a different place in Germany and uh, receive uh, um, um, a SIM card from a person who this person trusted. And, um, uh, and then I was told basically at what time to switch on um, uh, one of the burner phones and uh, with the SIM card. And um, so we had a different code um, for, for, you know, when to switch on this, this, this phone and I had to go somewhere else. I went to a park. And um, before I did that, I used all the information um, which we had known about um, Jihadi John, also information that Adam got through interviews and made a list. You know, there were a couple of, co of words that I put down. I mean, for example, one freed hostage said that um, Jihadi John was obsessed with Somalia. He used to watch Somalia videos. So I put down Somalia on my list. Um, um, I uh, kind of like sense that this person must be um, educated um, just by the, from the way he spoke. So a couple of different words. And so when I spoke to this person in 
um, from the ISIS structure, finally, who, when he called me on that uh, specific SIM card and phone, um, I began to tell him about all the things I knew. And he, he thought that um, the British were leaking things to us. And um, he kind of like told me for the first time during this conversation um, the last name of Chihadi John. And um, then I, of course, had to work a bit on getting a second source and uh, yeah so it's it was a it was a crazy story <laughs> so but because you had done the homework and because almost detective like you and adam had come up with these traits and uh things about uh, jihadi john when you had that conversation he thought that you were just you just were probably handed a file by somebody in British intelligence, right? When in fact, a lot of it was your own journalism, was your own investigative work that got a portrait that you were able to describe, yeah, and get and and get him then to give you the name. Is that right? Am I reading it right? Yes, absolutely. I I, I think he was uh, he had the um, he sensed that um, that uh, the Br British authorities were trying to. Um, to release um, a specific picture about um, Mohammed Mwazi, and he he basically told me that there was um, something to research about this person, um, and he named an organization and told me I should go to the UK and ask um, uh, Cage, um, an organization about Mwazi, um, mm -hmm. and um, and that was the conversation, and then he basically also told me to destroy the SIM card. And um, yeah, which I did. And then I uh, went to the UK, back to London, and I met people from um, from Cage. I had um, contacted them before and asked if they had something on somebody called Mwazi. And, um, uh, and when I met them the first time there, I didn't tell them, of course, that I had a suspicion that this Mwazi was Jihadi John, but I wanted to know what was the story of this Mr. Mwazi. And um, and turned out that Mr. Mwazi had also um, been uh, detained um, by uh, intelligence services because he tried to travel to Somalia. And so, you know, things uh, turned out to, to fit into the list that we had already. So, yeah. Um, yeah it was, it was a, you were putting a puzzle together. Absolutely. Yeah, it was yeah. like putting a puzzle together and then uh, also, of course, going back and forth um, I mean, this was, uh, it, it was, it was a little bit, uh, it reminded me a little bit like, uh, when we did the Al Masri story. I mean, this whole question, is this now really the truth? Is this really the person? Um, and I mean, you, you can, you, you will see in the chapter, um, it was not an easy story to do and it was definitely not easy to, uh, an easy decision to make, you know, whether to run the name, uh, because, uh, we've been told that maybe we would put the life of one other hostage in danger. But, um, mm -hmm. after we, we checked it with different sources, also Adam did and the post did, and we took this, of course, very seriously. Um, but we decided, um, uh, to run the story because our sources told us the hostage wouldn't be harmed because of that. So, um, and uh, we decided to run the story. And the hostage was not harmed. No, because it was no. Story. He was not. He was not. He appeared he later. Not. No, he appeared later in different videos. It, uh, right. It's a photojournalist who um, who was uh, also taken by ISIS and who appeared in different ISIS videos, and he later appeared um, also again in videos. So uh, yeah, but it was a. Dis I mean, this is of course, it's not an easy um, decision. So that was. Um, 
but we, I mean, I'm glad that um, all our sources were right and um, he wasn't harmed because of that, yeah. And after the story was published, Suat, I'm curious, what was the reaction of the commander who gave you the name initially? Did you did you speak with him again, or did you never speak with him again after the story was published? So, as you as you saw in the story, I did not mention his name um, no. because, right. yeah, I pr- I promised him never to um, reveal his identity. Um, I um, had a much later. Uh, an indirect contact with him and uh, because I I mean wanted to to see what they thought of the story and um, he said it was a fair story hmm. Wow yeah interesting and he and he, he had no comment about how you had it did I mean because he he already assumed you knew it before he told you right he was um, he he just told me I mean indirectly. In other words, he thought he was confirming something you already knew. He thought he was confirming something in you, and um, I mean I could see from the from the message I received from the other person that he basically said, yeah, um, by the end of the day, you really are a journalist, so you did your job. And I said, <laughs> right. yeah, I did my job. Um, yeah, but he, well, you well you did. You, I mean, yeah. what's remarkable about the way you tell the story, and it, it, I love how it's described in the book. And and we're talking about Suad's book, which was published earlier this year by Henry Holt. It's called "I Was Told to Come Alone: My Journey Behind the Lines of Jihad." It, it, again, it's it's this it's this it's not even a trick. I was going to call it a trick of journalists. It's not a trick. It, it's it's detective work. It's journalism. It's digging into every source you know how to put together a portrait, in this case, of somebody whose identity you're trying to find out. And you're asking educated, smart questions of somebody. And you've done so much homework and put so many puzzle pieces together already when you get to that commander that he assumes you already know. Yeah. He assumes he's telling you, you know, he, he probably came away from that call thinking he confirmed something you had already figured out. And as you know, Sue, that happens in investigative reporting often. You're, you're, you're a detective. You're putting pieces together. And, you, and when you go with that much knowledge to people, it stands out. I, I mean, I hate to say that, but a lot of journalists, they don't have the time, the luxury of time that we do to put that kind of information together. And people notice when you do that and they give you the respect and um, and will often fill in blanks for you because they assume you already know the key parts, even when sometimes you don't. But, you know, honestly, um, also, uh, Don, uh, we wouldn't be able to do these kind of stories if it weren't also for amazing editors and then also colleagues who um, who are helping us to put this um, this different um, things together and who are giving us, of course, the um the trust and um the yes. the ability of doing all of this um it's very very difficult if um to do this this kind of work if you don't have people um behind you are working with you who um who basically um you know um allowing you to do to do all this and um who don't and i i think i'm also blessed that um throughout my career i had um you know, I was um, I had amazing colleagues to work with. I mean, there there was you, of course. There was Michael Moss from the New York Times, and then you know Adam, um, Greg Miller from the Washington Post, uh, Peter Finn, who's now my editor. And Peter, I mean, it's great. You know, he knows exactly how difficult um, this kind of work is because he, he did it himself. Um, so this, of course, helps. It it gives us um, the um, you know you know the the, the freedom to do the work the, the way we have to do it. Um, 
And that's very, very important. It really is. The trust of a great editor is, you know, the most important thing that you can have as a, as a journalist. When, when you know that an editor, you know, back in the home office has your back and will defend you fiercely against attacks because the attacks come when you do this kind of work, that's can't put a price tag on it. It's just, it's remarkable. And uh, both of us have been very lucky in our careers to have had that. Um, it really means everything. What's the advice you give to young journalists when they ask you, I want to be Suad McKennett? What do you tell them? I would tell any person who would like to become a journalist and who has the question mark whether he or she can pursue that, that if this is your passion and if you really believe that you um, want to be a journalist, whether it's Suat McKennett or I think, you know, I'm actually, I don't, um, I feel a little shy when you, when you ask this question. <laughs> but, um, you know, I was in, I wanted to become a journalist when I watched All the President's Man. And, um, and I, um, even though there were a lot of obstacles a lot of people who told me are oh, just you know forget it you will never reach there um uh you will never become a journalist i just um went you know i i went i followed my passion and i think that's uh, important um the other thing is um i think in all you know i also would like to be honest this this kind of reporting comes also with the price tag and i think as a woman um, you pay very often still a higher price than men. It's, um, it's, uh, it's, uh, um, I think people have a, have a weird idea about what kind of woman would do this kind of reporting. They have a weird idea about what kind of person I must be. <laughs> and, um, very often I hear from people when they meet me, wow, you are so soft-spoken and you actually <laughs> smile and you're laughing. And I'm like, yeah, what kind of person would you expect? To do? And they were like, well... well what, are their, what are their expectations? They think you're going to be some... A monster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. yes, it's a, some fierce person snarling or something? Yeah. What, what, is, what are the expectations? Yes. Uh, somebody told me recently, we thought you like... Um, we wouldn't thought you were such a, you know, it's weird to talk about myself like this, but somebody told me recently, well, I I didn't think that they would be so soft-spoken, warm heart, you know, somebody who's so warm, has so much warmth. And I mean, you know me, I'm not like somebody who screams or who's aggressive in that sense. And, um, no, and, no. but people have, uh, you know, don't, when they see the kind of stories, and I think especially men, and now this is the price you pay, it's, um, it's very difficult to date. Trust me, very difficult to date. Um, <laughs> I think it would be easier for men if they do this kind of job um, and and the reporting. Um, they 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 will be seen as heroes. I think women um, who do this kind of reporting are often seen as, oh, what's wrong with her? What went wrong in her life? <laughs> Why is she doing that? And um, yeah. Well, whoever th whoever thinks that has got th their own issues, their own problems. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you're clearly a hero. And yeah, the thing about that thing that you have, Suad, and I'm going to make you blush now, is you have this great combination of um, fierceness when it comes to the truth and aggressiveness and hard charging and persistence uh, about getting to the truth of whatever story you're working on with empathy. And with um, sympathy for the people that you're meeting, 
even empathy for a terrorist. I mean, I, I, I'm at the risk of saying that, but I think that's true. I mean, you will listen at least um, to that person's side, and I think that they respond to that. At least I've, I've seen that um, in working with you, and certainly it comes through in your other stories of, that I've read. Um, and that's a, that's a rare combination. Um, you know, most investigative reporters are hard-charging. They lack the empathy. Um, they lack that other part of it. And, um, and that's an extraordinary combination. I th- think it's served you very, very well. Uh, you're absolutely right. I'm actually now really, um, I don't know what to answer. <laughs> <laughs> There's no answer. That was just a comment. That wasn't a question. That was just a comment. It was just a compliment. Just, uh, uh, but it, but it's really true and, and well deserved. Um, you have a question in, on the, on your, in your book that I want you to answer for our listeners, because I think it's a really provocative, interesting one. And I think your book does answer it. But um, the question is, what is in the minds of young jihadists and how can we understand and diffuse it? And I know that's the question often that you have in mind as you go out and do these stories. But what do you think it is right now? Um, What is it that uh, young jihadists uh, want and how can the world best um, diffuse um, what their what their goals are? So I will answer this question by quoting somebody who I recently uh, interviewed, who is um, an ISIS member. And um, I asked him, now the caliphate is gone. Um, he told me, yeah, but ISIS is not, and our fight is not, has not, won't stop. And I asked him, so what is it you want? And he said, first of all, we want justice. And I told him, what? justice are you talking about? And um, this is somebody who was uh, radicalized in Europe. And he told me, well, where's the justice for um, when it comes to, when it came to the decision of um, the British and uh, the US to go into Iraq in 2003 and, um, you know, and start a, a war under the pretext that there were weapons of mass destructions and there were no weapons of mass destruction. So where's the justice there? Um, or he went on, he said, where's the justice for all the people who were tortured in secret detention centers? Um, all these kind of things um, are things that he and others are still mentioning. So as long as they feel that they are not getting the justice uh, they think uh, is needed, um, and as long as we are not uh, talking about these topics, Don, uh, recruiters mm-hmm. will, and recruiters will have an easy target by using all these arguments against um, us, against our Western countries, and by, by telling them um, those people are, you know, all full of double standards. And the justice argument resonates uh, 14 years later, the, the lack of WMD in Iraq and that being used by uh, President George W. Bush's justification primarily for the war, that that still resonates across 14 years among recruiters and among, you know, young jihadists as, as a reason to join up? It, it does. does. Wow. It does. But yeah. it's one of the, I mean, those are some of the arguments they are using. Um, they're using other arguments. They're using the drone strikes. They're using, mm-hmm. you know, but in, I mean, those, it was interesting when he told me justice, um, I felt well, and you know, it's one of the one of the big big um, issues. And um, they discuss a lot foreign policy. Uh, most of those guys, when I meet them, they don't discuss religion with me. They discuss, uh, you know, foreign policy or what they call justice issues. Um, so yeah, that's one of the answers. 
Wow. Well, I want to ask you one of our final questions here uh, looking forward. So how much longer do you anticipate doing this kind of crazy, um, dangerous work? Um, and do you anticipate ever maybe becoming an editor? What, what, what do you see yourself doing five or 10 years down the road? I think um, it all depends on what uh, happens now with the um, with with the the the, the idea of turning this uh, book into a TV series. I think that's that's going to uh, play a, a big role in the decision. Um, do I want oh, well, to? Let become... me let me interrupt you, Suad, and tell our listeners. So yes, the, I was told to come alone. Suad's book that was published um, this spring has been optioned for a TV series. It's being developed into a TV series. Tell our listeners a little bit about that. It's very exciting. It's very cool. Yeah, it's actually amazing, and I'm um, very honored that um, you know this uh, amazing um, producer Elizabeth Cantillon. Um, and there were a lot of other producers who actually were interested and I finally, you know, I met them all and I um, finally actually decided um, that I would go with Elizabeth Cantillon and Brillstein um, Entertainment. Um, so uh, those are amazing partners to have and um, they are very serious um, uh, when it, you know, we, we are discussing now how to develop this into a TV series and um, so it's... Um, I think this this is going to play a very important um, role into the decision. Um, how long am I in? So I'm a journalist. I like journalism. Um, will I do this kind of work my whole life? I don't. Um, I don't think so. Um, it depends also on what um, or if something changes in my private life. Um, <laughs> I would uh, definitely like to have a family, and uh, I am aware that um, when you have a partnership, I mean, you know this. Uh, you cannot do everything um, you may be able to do without um, um, a partner or children um, when you have them. It's just you think in a different way. You don't think only about your own life. You think about all the other people in your life. And um, um, so that's uh, all these things um, play a role in it. But um, until... Um, I feel that there is a need to explain to people what's going on in this world, um, how um, how big the danger could be for all of us. I will do my level best to shed light into this kind of, um, you know, mindsets of jihadists. Well, uh, congratulations on the book, Suai. Congratulations on all your success. And I'm looking forward to seeing the TV series. That's going to be uh, that's going to be amazing. Thank you, Don. Um, and, and very, very cool. So thank you so much for making the time. You're our first podcast guest, by the way, who is abroad. Suad is in Germany right now speaking to us. And uh, so that's also cool. And we uh, conquered some technical issues to make this happen. <laughs> and and uh, and it's just great to catch up with you, Suad. I really appreciate you making time. I know how busy you are. And uh, I've really enjoyed our chat and hope we can do it again soon. So good luck with everything and keep uh, the great work going. Thanks, Don. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. So this was Suad McKennett. She's national security correspondent for the Washington Post. She's reported on terrorism for the New York Times and other news organizations. And she's the author of I Was Told to Come Alone, My Journey Behind the Lines of Jihad, published by Henry Holt. I highly recommend the book. It's terrific and uh, big national bestseller. And as uh, Suad described now, being developed for a TV series, which we're all going to look forward to seeing. 
Uh, This is the Sunday Long Read Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Coming up, future guests include a single podcast with my friends Wright Thompson and Seth Wickersham. Really looking forward to that. We're going to be doing that within the next week. So I think that's what we'll have for you next time. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon. Thank you.